0: That brings us to my message title today, Experiencing God in a Godless Nation. So if you would, join with me by turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13 today. Genesis 13, and let's travel back in time just about 4,000 years ago. Yes, all the way back to circa 2000 B.C. We find ourselves on the border of the Dead Sea. Now, before you think I am wacky for believing in the catastrophic catastrophic destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, I want to point out to you two pieces of evidence. First, God records it in the Bible. God said it, it's true, and I believe it. Let God be true, and every man what? a liar Romans chapter 3 verse 4 so basically the apostle Paul said every time you disagree with God you're believing a lie don't do it don't do it if God said it it is true now let me give you a second corroborating reason i believe that this is a historical event now i don't need this to believe it but it is kind of cool that we have it And that is empirical, scientific evidence confirms the event as true. From the Forbes magazine, the title of the article is, New Science Suggests Biblical City of Sodom Was Smote by an Exploding Meteor. You can Google it yourself. Uh, You search Forbes, science suggests biblical city of Sodom, exploding meteor. Now, Forbes, is that a Christian magazine? (laughs) Is that like like Christian archaeology? No, no, no. Uh, Forbes magazine is a well-known financial magazine, but they also do articles on science and culture. There in your notes, I thought this was good for you to have. 2018. New research finds that a powerful airburst from a meteor colliding with the atmosphere wiped out a Bronze Age civilization along the Dead Sea some 3,700 years ago. They've used carbon dating to prove this. The findings come from the excavation of the tall al-Hammam archaeological site. Many believe it is the same place once known as Sodom, the city of sin, supposedly destroyed with fire sent from God. Archaeologist Philip Silvia of Trinity Southwest University in Albuquerque, working with the team excavating the site for over 13 years, presented their report at the American Schools of Oriental Research. Samples from the site show that an extremely hot explosive event leveled an area of almost 200 square miles. Evidence shows it took at least, now listen, six centuries. For the region to recover and for civilization to return. Now notice this last sentence. Archaeologists may be able to answer some of the big questions about the story of Sodom. If it turns out that el Hammam is Sodom, and they're saying it is, and it was destroyed by a cosmic airburst, and they're saying it is, the biggest question remains. Did someone perhaps a deity order an asteroid hit on sodom that's the question now the heat was so intense that it produced melted pottery i'm showing you a picture of it here scorched foundation stones and several feet of ash and destruction debris archaeologists found pottery fragments whose surfaces had been melted into glass, indicating that they were burned in a flash heat far exceeding 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. Interesting. The U.S. Geologic Survey Laboratory, New Mexico, says the piece of pottery was confirmed to be identical with samples produced by atomic explosions. Scientists call this type of glass trinitite, Named after the Trinity nuclear test explosions in New Mexico in uh, uh, July 1945. It's impossible for furnaces to have produced this. There are no volcanoes in this region. And so, here today, you're watching online, if you doubt your Bible, then I say to you, trust the science (laughs) have you heard that before trust the science believe the evidence fact several cities were destroyed by an intense flash of heat 4,000 years ago fact the destruction was so great civilization did not return to the region for 600 years fact the flash heat happened in a second and this is the background for my message today. Godless nations have always been around. The question is, how do, we, how do we experience God while living in a godless nation? Would you please stand with me as I read from Genesis chapter 13? The story is between Abraham and his nephew Lot. Genesis 13 verse 8. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, between my herdmen and thy herdmen; for we we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me: if thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right; if thou wilt depart to the right, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, the one from the other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot pitched, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent towards Sodom. Oh, but the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. May we pray. Our Father, we come to you now and we need your help. We need your help desperately for ourselves, our families, our community, our church. Father, we do live in an increasingly wicked nation a nation that is fast turning their back on you, ignoring your truth, despising your love. So, Father, help us, teach us, show us how we are to respond, how to live and to love, to give and to forgive in this culture. If there be one that knows not Christ, may this be the the hour that they open their heart and they believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can come into your heaven, but by our Savior. Draw them to yourself today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, throughout history, most governments have been led by unbelievers, the unsaved. Sometimes there are this rare model of honesty and integrity, like, like George Washington, like Abraham Lincoln, but many times, Many of the leaders, they are corrupt. And as Christians, we find ourselves living in a culture that is more and more hostile to our faith and our beliefs. So how do we experience God while living in a godless nation? Well, the Bible gives us many examples of men and women who, who were living in times of darkness, but they, they believed they were faithful like, like Noah, uh, like Abraham and Sarah, uh, like, like Moses and Joshua, uh, like Esther, like Daniel. But now it's our turn. It's our turn. And through the centuries, the church has experienced great seasons of persecution from the early centuries to the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, even during the years of the Protestant Reformation. uh, There were times of persecutions for those who followed the Lord. Jesus said, don't be surprised. Jesus said, expect it. Uh, Jesus said, it's coming. But then in the Sermon on the Mount, he also said, I want you to rejoice when the persecution comes. Why? Because great is your what? Reward in heaven. Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. And yet, after 17 centuries of sometimes brutal persecution, something happened on this day. This day. July 4th, 1776, That slowed the persecution of Christians. 245 years ago, a nation was born. Our nation. And so we say, happy birthday, America. And today we celebrate our our nation's birthday. You know, America is a miracle. It is a miracle. Against all odds, we won our independence. General Washington, you know, he lost most of his battles. He lost most of his battles with his ill prepared, underpaid, undersupplied troops. He lost most of his battles, but he won the war. He won the war. And today we celebrate that victory. In the history of the world, America is a most unusual and successful experiment. And I believe it came about because of prayer. And this is a factual rendering of Washington praying right here at Valley Forge. What happened? Well, our nation was founded on religious liberty with a Christian foundation. And that allowed allowed for revivals. That allowed for faithful churches, both here and across the country, faithful Christians uh, sharing their faith, uh, godly schools pointing people uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ that has resulted in millions and millions being saved through our country's history. The Lord made America a superpower within 150 years of that first birthday. And He also made us a beacon of, of liberty And light to the world. We, our country, has been a launching pad for thousands of missionaries for Jesus Christ around the world. But now, today, more than half of our nation does not know God's love or God's truth in their hearts. For many, we are like the period of the judges. Every man did that which was right, where? In his own eyes. Now, if you think America just just turned the corner to spiritual darkness and corruption in the last 10 or 20 years, you are mistaken. You see, in 1963, 1964, the U.S. Supreme Court banned prayer in public schools. The U.S. Supreme Court banned Bible reading for devotional in public schools. In the 1960s, the decade of decadence began the sexual revolution. In the 1970s, the decade to promote and accept sexual perverse behavior. In 1987, taxpayer-funded NEA, a national endowment of the arts, actually gave $150,000 to an artist who took a picture of a crucifix in a bottle of his own urine. It's a sample of the godlessness back in the 1980s. Last month, 2021, drag queen events in Royersford and King of Prussia. So how do we go from being a nation dominated by Judeo-Christian values and principles to a nation for many that not just ignore God, but they hate God and His truth? How do we go from being a nation that, that was a, a place of revival to secularism and no fear of God? And now, fear of God, they like to define that as reverential trust, but it's much more than that. How do we do it? Well, the answer is slowly. Slowly. Like the frog in the pot of warm water, if you threw a frog in boiling water, he would jump out. But if it's in a pot of warm water and you simmer and the boiling goes slow, well, let me tell you how it happened. It began more than a hundred years ago in the pulpits. The blame lies in the churches that turned away from God. So when when Darwin wrote his false lies about evolution in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, many of the pastors in seminary said, oh no, maybe our Bible is not true. And so they had a choice to believe what they thought was science or the Word of God, and they pulled away, and they stopped preaching the fundamentals of the faith in the Word of God. They stopped pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not everyone, and thankfully, we're part of that, that, that great Uh, 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 branch of folks that have believed the Bible, the Apostles' Doctrine for the last 2,000 years. But the pulpits first turned away from truth. The seminaries turned away from truth. Then in the 1930s, John Dewey introduced socialism into the public schools. And so now, Christians are not in the majority. We are in the minority. But ladies and gentlemen, This is our mission field. And if you haven't noticed it lately, when you drive out the front entrance, this is the sign that you see that was placed there in 1990 to remind each one of us that you are now entering the mission field. Like it or not, you are a missionary. Like it or not, you are living on the mission field. Like it or not, you're a good missionary or a bad missionary. We have some good missionaries sitting right over here. Michael and Joanna DeLuca and their family. And Michael just had surgery, so we're praying for his, uh, his recovery. Less than half of our population now attends church, which indicates that they are either not a Christian or they simply don't care enough about worshiping Jesus Christ on the most important day of the week, his resurrection Sunday. But we are not to sit home and mope about the good old days, but rather we are to rejoice that we are alive and we know Jesus Christ as our Savior and we are called to serve Him and shine His light to others. Now the classic, the classic example of experiencing God in a godless nature would be Abraham and Lot. And today we find ourselves in a culture very much like Sodom and Gomorrah. So, So let's see where you are today. Let's see if you are more like Abraham or you are more like Lot. Number one, your priorities. What are your priorities? Well, Lot chose financial prosperity. Abraham chose spiritual prosperity. So don't fill it in yet. Don't fill it in yet. As far as you, which are you going to put yourself on? Listen to the explanation, and then you decide which column you will put your name under. Lot got his priorities all messed up. He placed financial success above spiritual success for himself and his family. You know the story well. Lot is the nephew of Abraham. They both became very successful. They, they had to split because their herds of, and flocks have grown so large, verses 8 and 9. They're going to go different directions. And so in verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes. He beholds all the plain of Jordan, that it is well watered everywhere before the Lord. Verse 11, then Lot chose him. He chose for himself all the plain of Jordan. He journeyed east, and he pitched his tent towards Sodom. Verse 12, he chose for himself. He made a selfish decision. That's a mistake. Now, if a businessman came alongside Lot, they would say, look at this guy. Man, this is an up-and-comer. This is an example of a a hugely successful entrepreneur. I mean, this guy is going places. He knows how to make aggressive and quick and and savvy decisions. You walked into uh, Lot's tent and looked at his his library, you're going to find books like uh, uh, like, uh, How to Make it to the Top Fast, Looking Out for Number One, Successful worldly. While Lot was out making money, his kids were out making friends. Folks, may I share something with you from my heart? Birds of a feather, what? Flock together. The friendships you choose are key in your heart, staying with God or turning From God Who you choose as your close friends Is extremely important That's why you need a church That's why you need adult Bible fellowship That's why you need a spiritual community Take your kids to VBS Send them to camp Make sure they attend Forge, teens, Sunday school And Wednesday and teen activities Make sure they're in junior church And Sunday school Lot is sitting in the gates Chapter 19 verse 1 I mean, he's wheeling, he's dealing, he's successful, but his kids are out playing with the kids of Sodom. I, I know what you're thinking. But you just can't protect your kids from everything. I've heard all the arguments, and you're exactly right. You can't put them in a bubble. But I'm here to tell you that the proverb is still true. He that walketh with wise men shall be what? Wise, but a companion of fools shall be what? Destroyed, Proverbs thirteen twenty. So a general rule is kids who hang around A and B students will get A's and B's. And kids who hang around students who are dropouts and goof-offs, they're going to be the same as well. Questions for living in a godless nation. Do, Do your friends love God, His Word, His church? Do your friends challenge you spiritually to love God more? Do you feel closer to the Lord after a time of fellowship? Did I skip a page? Number two. Did I skip number two? No? No, I did it? I did. Wake up. Come on. (laughs) If you don't like this message, watch it from the 9 o'clock hour. I was right on with that. I did. Okay, let's go back to number one. Lot made financial prosperity his choice, but Abraham made spiritual prosperity his choice. You know what, what about Abraham? When Abraham went to a new area, do you know what he did? He made an altar. And then he dug a well. And then if he moved to another area, what he did is he made an altar. And he dug a well. You know what he did? Worship first. Church first. God first. Spiritual prosperity was number one for him. So here are questions for living in a godless nation. Lot have you found a place of worship down in Sodom? We would say, did you find a church home? Lot, have you found a place where your kids can go to Sunday school? Lot, have you, have you looked at the school system? Are they for God or are they against God? You know, friends, I'm amazed at families that make moves because of their jobs. Pastor, we're going to move. We're going to move, too. And I always ask, have you found a church home? And it thrills my heart when people say, "Oh yes, we checked it out. We wouldn't move unless we had a, a good and godly church to go to. But sometimes people say, "Well, well, we want to find one just like Valley Forge Baptist." Now our, our missionaries we have over 200 of them our missionaries tell us that and these are men and women who have been to over 200 churches on their deputation and furlough. And they tell us there aren't too many churches like Valley Forge Baptists. So don't be naive. Don't be naive. When someone moves, I, I, I try my best to help, help find them a church in that new area. And sometimes they do, but many times they have a hard time finding a good church, and there are consequences that go with that. So your priority, financial prosperity, spiritual prosperity. Number two, oh, I feel so much better now. Number two, your friendships, your friendships. Lot chose bad friends. Abraham chose godly friends. Your friends influence you greatly for good or for bad. Choose wisely. Psalm 1 says, avoid the critic. Proverbs says, stay away from the mocker, stay away from the fool. Rebuke them, yes, but don't go golfing, don't go fishing with them unless you do it for the purpose of sharing your faith with them. Why? Because their doubts and their criticisms will affect you more than you think. So Lot made his friends in Sodom, And so did his kids. His daughters, his daughters even married them, atheists. When Lot Lot warned his daughters and sons-in-laws that judgment was coming, what happened? They mocked him, and they refused to leave. So Lot expected his family to live in Sodom, but not be like the people who lived in Sodom. He thought he could put his, his family in a wicked city and not be affected by it. But verse 13 says, But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Lot, he saw it as a good business plan. But when his family went to Sodom, it was a place of temptation. While Lot was out making money, his family was out making friends. Now here are the questions for living in a godless nation. Do your friends love God? Do your friends love his word? Do your friends love his church? Do your friends challenge you spiritually to love God more? Do you feel closer to the Lord after a time of fellowship with your friends? Or do you feel drained? I mean, they complained about this and they griped about that and they don't like that. Do your friends edify you spiritually? Friendships. Bad friends, godly friends. Number three. Number three, your loving fences. Lot had weak convictions. Abraham had strong convictions. Uh, Which column will you put your name under? Do you have loving fences and standards in your life? So let me give you some association principles. Where you go determines who you meet. Simple enough. Where you go determines who you meet, right? I mean, get in the car with me, and tonight I can take you to places where we can have some wholesome thoughts and we can be with Christians and have great fellowship or we could go to a place and in 10 minutes from this building we would not have godly thoughts we would be tempted to evil where you go determines who you meet number two who you meet determines how you think You're interacting with them because your thought process will basically be determined by the people you interact with on a continual basis. What you read, what you surf, what you watch. Now watch, watch this. How you think determines what you do. And then what you do determines what you become. What do you want to become? It goes back to, to where you go what you think and how you act. How do you become an addict? How do you become an addict? You know, it begins with with the first sip of alcohol. It begins with the first smoke. It begins with the first needle. And then occasional, occasional soon becomes a habit. Then a habit becomes an addiction. Do Do you know any successful addicts? I don't. I don't. Because they are are bound. They're in bondage. Paul said this. It's in your notes. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful unto me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. 1 Corinthians 6.12. Paul said, don't dabble in addictions. How can you avoid a lifetime of heartache and heartbreak the answer is strong convictions the answer is loving fences the answer is standards that will will keep you from that extra temptation so jesus said it this way you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free john chapter 8 verse 32 so if you want freedom come to jesus christ if you want freedom uh immerse yourself in the word of god Lot didn't understand that. Lot, he loved the rush of the fast life, the neon signs downtown, the nice clothes, the fast chariots, the worldly crowd. Lot thought he could take his family into an environment like Sodom and somehow they come out smelling like a rose. Impossible, folks. It will not happen. There's no such thing as a spiritual person who enjoys the wrong environment on a continual basis. Let's not be naive. Number four, your fear of God. Your fear of God. And yes, there is a reverential trust, but it's more than that to know that that we are people, created beings, and there is an eternal sovereign God. Lot denied the coming judgment. Abraham believed the coming judgment. What about you? Do you you believe we're in in the last of the last days? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming again and he could be coming again very soon? Genesis 18, three men came to Abraham. Two were angels and one was the the Lord, probably the Lord Jesus Christ. And they came in the form of a man. And they came and they talked with Abraham and then two left and they went towards Sodom. And the one that stayed behind was the Lord and, and he said... I will show to Abraham what I intend to do in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because he is a man who orders his household. And Abraham began to intercede for Lot in the city of Sodom. He began pleading in prayer. He said, "Oh Lord, oh Lord, would you would you spare the city from judgment if there be only 50 people?" And the Lord said, "I will I will spare it for 50." And then he said, "Oh Oh God, would you you spare the city? If there's only 45 believers in the city, would you spare the city? And the Lord said, I'll spare the city for 45, for 40. Oh God, would you spare the city? if There's only 30 people in the city. Would you spare the city from judgment? I will spare the city for 30. Oh Lord, please don't think me presumptuous, but if there's only 20 people in the city, would you spare the city from judgment? God said, oh, I'll spare the city for 20 people. One last prayer, one last intercession. Oh Lord, please don't think me be presumptuous, but if there's only 10 people in the city, will you spare the city for 10 people? And God said, if there's only 10 believers, 10 righteous, I will spare the city from judgment. And Abraham, he did the math. Do it with me. Do it with me. 10 righteous. So you've got Lot, You've got Mrs. Lot. You've got two single daughters. You've got at least two married daughters. You've got two sons-in-laws and at least a couple of grandkids. There's your ten. And so Abraham's thinking, surely the city is spared. And yet in a day, he saw the smoke rising. What happened? Lot A believer did not reach his own family. Lot, he was so cold and far away from God in his spiritual walk that he did not even impact his own family. And so the angels arrived at Sodom. The wicked men of that city came and wanted to rape the angels. The angels struck them blind. The angels literally drug that family out of the city the next day. Can you picture it?
1: Jehovah said, because the cry of Sodom
0: and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were full of evil, licentiousness, rampant with murder, and indulgence in extravagant pleasures. They reached the point of clamoring against God, of fighting against Him, and raging His disposition. Where are the men which came into you this night? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. After the angels took Lot and his family out of the city, burning sulfur rained down from the sky. The raging fire lit up the heavens. Hurry! Hurry up! Oh, my house! The lives are on the line. Who cares about the house? I'm not afraid. Just one look. Just one look. Gomorrah and all their residents were reduced to ashes, disappearing into the wrath of God. For 16 years, archaeologists have uncovered the ash and the remains of a fiery destruction. You go there today, you'll find a meter it's a yard of ash prophecy became history prophecy became history God said in the last days evil will wax worse and worse 2nd Timothy three thirteen. we can't stop it it's coming but in in warning us about the coming judgment the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 17 began to speak to us about the tribulation and in verse 32 Jesus said this to us three words remember Lot's wife remember Lot's wife Do you believe in coming judgment? Have you been reading the newspapers? Did you read Matthew chapter 24, verses 5, 6, and 7, where God says, These things, including pestilences, are going to come upon the world in the last days? There is a coming tribulation period. It's going to come. God predicted it. Have you heard it said that if God does not judge America, he may have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah? Judgment is coming. The tribulation is coming. This, this event that happened of a, of a meteor exploding and raining, fire down, creating no crater. You see if a meteor hits the Earth, there's a crater. It happened again in the year 2000, and I'm sorry, 1908, 1908 in, in Tung, Tunguska, Russia. A much larger meteor exploded in the sky, no crater. And a hundred square miles of fiery destruction. Do you believe judgment's coming? I do. I believe the Bible. I believe what Jesus Christ said. And so, what do we do? What can we do? What can we do as Christians living in a godless nation? Number one, become a true follower of Jesus Christ. Make sure that you are born again, not just to profess. Oh, pastor, you baptize me. I-, I don't care if I baptize you or not. Is Jesus Christ in your heart? Are you born again? Are you on your way to heaven? Because there was a time that you bowed to the Savior and said, Oh, God, forgive me for my sins. And I believe Jesus and Jesus alone for my salvation. And then choose to be like Christ, not the world. Abraham or Lot. Do You know, Lot did go to heaven. Lot is in heaven, according to 2 Peter chapter. Yeah, 2 Peter. And in 2 Peter, Lot is in heaven, but you know, none of his family is there. In the corner of heaven where it should be Lot and his family is just Lot all by himself. Live for Christ today. Three, lead others to Christ. You love your country, tell people about Jesus. Invite them to church. Bring those kids to Vacation Bible School. Lead others to Christ. And then pray for our nation. I was listening to First and Second Timothy this week, and, and, and Paul said we're to pray for those who in, are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives. Pray for our leaders. Pray for their salvation. And then one more, number five. If you're tangled in sin, seek someone to help get out of your mess. I mean, if you're tangled up, get some help. Get some help. God's grace can make the difference. No matter what you have done in the past, no matter what you have said, no matter where you have been, God's grace is greater than your sin. He will forgive you. He will restore you. He will empower you to be able to be his light, his ambassador, his messenger. May we pray. Father, thank you. I thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for these historical events that challenge us today in 2021. Lord, we thank you for our freedom, but we pray most of all that our spiritual freedom from sin, loving God, will grow more and more. Heads about, eyes are closed. If you'd say, Pastor, today, I know that if I died, I know I would go to heaven. I have been born again into God's family. Maybe you don't know the date, but you remember the time that you put your faith and trust in Christ, and you have a Bible reason that you know that you are saved. If you have that kind of assurance, would you simply raise your hand all over this congregation? If you know for certain heaven's your home. Thank you. You may put your hands down. You say, Pastor, I, I think I'd go to heaven. I hope I'd go to heaven. Oh, but I'm not sure. I have some doubts. But the Spirit of God is tapping on my heart today, tugging on my heart. I want to be saved. I want to know for certain that I am forgiven of all of my sins and that heaven is my home. I want to be born again today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Meaning, meaning, when you hear the good news, that's the day you are to respond. And so I have done my best to share with you that you can be born again into God's family by trusting in Christ alone. And if you want that assurance, Call upon the Lord. You say, how do I do that? The Bible says, Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you pray with me now? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Christians are praying. If you're not sure that heaven is your home, if you're not sure that you've been saved, but the Spirit of God is tugging on your heart, say yes to Him. Do what I did as a 15-year-old teenager call upon Him now. It's not about joining the church. It's not about baptism or sacraments. It's about you and God. Pray with me now, would you? Dear Lord, would you please forgive me for all of my sins? I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart and become my Lord and Savior. Would you please save me today? I choose Jesus Christ as my own. Heads about, eyes are closed. If you just pray with me and you meant it, may I say to you, welcome to the family of God. Welcome to God's family. And I'd like to pray for you this morning. I'll not call you out. I'll not embarrass you. Again, heads about, eyes are closed. But if you just pray with me and meant it, Would you simply lift your hand up for a moment? I'd like to pray for you. Anyone at all? Just hold your hand up high for a moment. Yes, Pastor, I pray with you, and I meant it from my heart. Just hold your hand up high for a moment. I'd like to pray for you today. If you're watching at home and have received the Lord as your Savior, contact us that we might be a help to you. Now, Father, I pray for each Christian. I pray, God, that we take these moments of invitation to be able to surrender our all to you. Heads bowed, eyes are closed. If you have a question and you'd like to speak to someone during the invitation him here is the piano place, would you come? Come down, meet a pastor, a pastor's wife. We'd be glad to talk to you and show you from God's word how you can be saved or to pray with you, whatever the need. Christian, would you take a moment and would you say, God, I surrender all I want to be your light in this dark nation. I want to point people to you. I want my life to count for Christ. Father, we thank you and praise you for all that you've done for us. Teach us this Independence Day to be dependent upon you, to love you with all our heart, mind, and soul, and to love others, to forgive, to share our faith, make our church strong, make our church a lighthouse for Christ, a launching pad, both in the community and around the world. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.
1: It is my privilege to open the Word of God with you again this evening. So we'll take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews 11 for the last time of the nine times we have been together. I'm grateful to Pastor Wendell for the opportunity that uh, he's given me to, to preach. It is truly one of my greatest loves Uh, I love to open the Word of God. I love to teach it and to preach it, um, to make it understandable and applicable to to your lives and to mine as well. I trust it's been that way to you and uh, a blessing to you as well. And I do appreciate many who have said so uh, throughout the weeks that we have been studying together. So we come to Hebrews 11. We're going to come to the end of this chapter. Uh, as we look at several verses here. I want us to consider miracles tonight. Webster defines miracle as an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. Who doesn't like to hear about miracles? You know, amazing acts, answers to prayer, evidence of God's working. But let's face it. Life is not made up only of miracles. There are times when we would like to receive a miracle, but instead we don't. We just have the hardship. But whether we see miracles or non-miracles, we're called to live by faith. So as the writer comes to the close of this great chapter, this chapter Uh, of faith, he begins to summarize, as I told you last week, and in verse 32, he just names some people, six people and one group, six people and one group, which is the prophets. Then, beginning in verse 33, he lists no people, just the acts. (laughs) Uh, Without saying who did what, it's just several acts of faith. But notice that he introduces that list in verse 33 the same way that he introduced the previous individuals that he highlighted in the earlier verses in this chapter. He says, who? Through faith. Through faith. You see, folks, faith is the key. Whether we see miracles or non-miracles, faith is the key. Now, there's a lot in these verses, and I almost hesitate to uh, take them all at once, but it's the last time, so we have, to, uh, we have to push through. And it's also good, I want you to see as well, that we take these two ideas together, the miracles and the non-miracles, so that I think we get the better comparison. The writer starts with the miracles. Look at what he says in verse 33. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. All these miracles... Look at each one of them very briefly as we go through. We need faith folks to seize the miracles We need faith to seize the miracles. The first one he says is who through faith subdued kingdoms The idea of that word subdued is to struggle against so yes It involves victory the subdued kingdom, but it also includes the aspect of struggle The point is folks that that these were not easy conflicts. They were dangerous In some of these conflicts, men lost their lives, just like they do in war today. But the end result was that the kingdom was subdued. The writer might have been thinking about the conquering of Sihon and Og on the other side of the Jordan, Or he might have been thinking of the many conquests of David. We are told in the scriptures that it was David that subdued the kingdoms of Edom and Moab, Ammon and Syria, and brought them all under tribute. Such victories were won, not because Israel was stronger. In many cases, Israel was the weaker one. But the battles were won by faith. We have the example of Samuel. We don't think of Samuel and the battles that he he, uh, waged, but there was one in particular. After 20 years of Philistine oppression, the people repented, we're told in 1 Samuel 7. They turned back to the Lord, and Samuel, the prophet, called the people to Mizpah for a sacrifice. But it says this in verse 10. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. So, so all the Israelites gathered at Mizpah for a religious festival, and the Philistines thought they were gathering for war, so all the Philistines came up against them. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. It says in verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued. And so they, they, they subdued the kingdoms by faith, like in that one. A second thing we're told is that they wrought righteousness. Th- throughout Israel's history, there were great miracles of righteousness. We tend to think of them as revivals. Samuel is one of those. He lived at the end of the judges and had to bring Israel back to the proper worship of God. Eli and his sons had let the priesthood slip into corruption. The Ark of the Covenant had been treated like a god itself. Ultimately, it was captured by the Philistines and then it was sent back to Israel. And as Judges puts it, Samuel's living in a day that every man did what was right in his own eyes. But under Samuel's leadership, righteousness was established in the land again. There's a revival at Mizpah. We see Elijah, he's living in dark days too. Faithfully preached against the worship of Baal in Israel. He single-handedly routed the prophets of Baal in a contest on Mount Carmel and succeeded in slaughtering 450 of those prophets well, what about Josiah he came to the throne at the age of eight and even as a young boy he worked righteousness by faith 2nd Chronicles 34 3 says for in the eighth year of his reign while he was yet young he began to seek after the God of David his father and in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and molten images At the age of 26, we're told that he decided to repair the temple. And in the process of the repairs, the book of the law was found. The word of God, which had been lost. Can you believe it? It was found. And as a result, there was a great revival in Judah. It was the last revival before the fall to Babylon. I love the stories of revival, both in the Bible and throughout church history. I love the stories of revival, especially the ones that happened in America. During the first great awakening, Jonathan Edwards wrought righteousness by faith when he preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We're told from history that when he delivered that sermon in Enfield, Connecticut, The congregation was so moved with the Holy Spirit's conviction on them that night that many of them cried out for mercy Right there in the middle of the sermon They clung to the pews in front of them. They clung to the the poles on the that were underneath the the balconies for fear of falling into hell alive That's how strong the conviction was When Edwards preached that night He wrought righteousness. The writer goes on to say that they obtained miracle promises. I think of the widow of Zarephath. In the midst of a severe drought, God sent Elijah to the widow there at Zarephath. When he saw her, he asked for a drink of water and a little cake of bread. And she replied that she only had enough flour left to make a little meal for her and her son. She was going to make that And then they were going to die, because there was no more food. And Elijah said to her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first. And bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. By faith, she took the last of her flour and fed the prophet, believing that God would replenish that meal and oil. And he did. And they lived on that. For months after obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions, it says. Obviously, that's referring to Daniel. He's thrown into the lion's den by faith. Daniel refused to compromise his convictions regarding prayer. And because of his faith, God performed a great miracle and shut the mouths of those hungry lions quenched the violence of fire. Well, that was Daniel's friends, right? We read about them too. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow to the king's idol, so they're thrown into the, the fiery furnace, the one that Nebuchadnezzar had heated seven times hotter. But they survived. They quenched the power or the violence of the fire. Have you ever seen a miracle Have you ever seen God work a miracle in your life? I imagine you have. There's answers to prayer, miraculous healing, amazing provisions. I've seen God's miracles many times. I could tell you stories. I could probably take the rest of the hour and just tell you stories of miracles that God has worked, but I'll only tell you one. When Nathaniel, uh, my adopted son, was diagnosed with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, we applied to get him a service dog. The agency that we went through took a year to train a dog, and they didn't start training the dog until you had raised your portion of the money. At that time, which was a number of years ago now, uh, but at that time, it cost the agency $22,000 to train a dog. They expected us to raise 13000 And they told us it took most families a year to raise the funds. Well, now you do the math, right? Uh, a year to raise the funds, a year to wait for them to train the dog, that's two years. Charity and I said, we can't wait two years. (laughs) Well, we could have if God would have wanted that. But uh, we said, Lord, his, his need is great now. And we decided we would pray that God would bring the money in in one month. Now, I was pastoring a church I didn't have time for fundraisers and planning all of that, so we just wrote letters to our family and friends. Just sent them out, and that was it. And then we prayed. Well, I want you to know that God did not bring in the 13,000 in one month. He brought in the entire 22,000. When we saw that, Charity said to me, it's like God said, this dog is from me. It was a miracle. And God did it. He goes on to talk about more miracles. Escape the edge of the sword. <laughs> Probably no man has escaped the edge of the sword more times than David. That's what at least, at least in the Bible, it seems that way. There was the sword of Goliath. There was the sword of Saul several times. There's the sword of Absalom. There was the sword of the foreign enemies then when he became king. And over and over and over again, saw, I mean, Sam, excuse me, David escaped the edge of the sword. He says, out of weakness were made strong, and I think Samson is the most obvious character here, especially in his last great feat of pulling down the temple of Dagon. Because of his compromise, his eyes had been plucked out, his uh, hair had been cut off, but the Bible said it began to grow back on that day when he sat between the columns of that temple by faith, out of weakness, he was made strong and pulled that temple down and killed more in his death than he ever did in his life. It says that they waxed valiant in fight, or literally became strong in battle. And that involves courage and bravery, but most of all, faith. The son of King Saul, Jonathan, is a great example of this. While Saul was sitting under a tree, and the Philistines were forming their armies, Jonathan and his armor-bearer took on a Philistine garrison, all by themselves, we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 14. In verse 6, Jonathan says to his armor-bearer, Come, let us go over under the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And the two of them fought back to back and slew 20 Philistines in a space no bigger than a half an acre. It was faith that strengthened them for battle. You know, folks, as a Christian, you will have many dangerous conflicts, especially spiritual conflicts. Our enemy is strong, and you're going to have to face him in battle. It takes faith to be able to defeat the devil in conflict. Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 6, In verse 10, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then he begins to talk about the pieces of the armor. But what does he say in verse 16? And above all, taking the shield of faith. Faith. Wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Do you want to wax valiant and fight the fight against the the enemy, Satan? You need the shield of faith. Faith. He goes on to say that they turned to flight the armies of the aliens, or the foreigners. Several Old Testament characters could be named here. They defeated even some of the strongest enemies by faith turned them to flight. Yes, they took off running. You know, that should give us hope for our battles against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The Apostle John says in 1 John 5, verse 4, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. The last miracle is in verse 35. He says, women received their dead raised to life again. Elijah raised the boy of the widow of Zarephath. Elisha raised the son of the Shunammite woman. When her boy died, the Shunammite ran to meet Elisha. She wouldn't speak to anyone else. A miracle had been given to her when the boy had been born because she couldn't have any children. And now the child had died, and she runs to Elisha, believing that God could work through Elisha again, and sure enough, he did, and he raised the boy from the dead. These are miracles, folks. These are the exciting stories. These are the events that make heroes. These are the things that that we all want to experience. And in fact, we do experience miracles. We all see them big and small throughout our lives. They are ours by faith. But the writer didn't stop with miracles. Look again at verse 35. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment, they were stoned, They were sawn asunder, they were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. You need faith to seize the miracles. You need faith to endure the trials. Look at that word others there in verse 35. Others. Not all of God's servants saw the same miracles in their lives. We're reminded there that some women received their sons back from the dead. Others were tortured to death. Some, like David, we're told, escaped the edge of the sword, but in verse 37, he said, some were slain with the sword. Do you see it? God called some men to exercise faith that brought them success and victory, or so we would call it. But God called other men to exercise faith through hardship and suffering, even death. And you don't get to choose which group you're in. In fact, we are all in both groups. (laughs) The road to heaven is not paved with roses, or at least not solely with roses, for there are many roses on the way to heaven, but there are thorns too. I find it interesting when I read the trials here in verses 35 to 38 It's more difficult for me to pinpoint who the writer might have had in mind When I read about the miracles, I I can remember the people and the names and the stories But when I get to this part, I don't think they're as well known. It's more general Or so it seems, you know, the stories of suffering are not as well known as the miracles But you and I need to realize, folks, that while the world may not know who these people are, God does. Look specifically at what he says. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. The word tortured means, it comes from the root word meaning to beat, very simply. The word literally means to stretch on a wheel and to beat, even to death. The noun form of this word was used to describe the death inflicted upon Eliezer One of the chief Jewish scribes in Jerusalem in the second century BC when Antiochus Epiphanes invaded the city Antiochus came in and he forced the men the Jews there to eat swine's meat swine of course is uh, An unclean animal to the Jews And he forced it upon them When he forced the food into Eliezer's mouth, he spit it out because he refused to compromise his beliefs. He was beaten to death. Just before he died, he said, according to uh, history, it is manifest unto the Lord that hath the holy knowledge that whereas I might have been delivered from death, had he compromised, I now endure sore pains in body being beaten, but in soul, Am well content to suffer these things because I fear him That's faith Faith to be tortured not accepting deliverance the word deliverance. There is the word that's often translated in the New Testament. Redemption The idea is that a price that would have been paid for their release You know, what was the price? Well recant their faith and they would be released but they were unwilling to pay that price. And thus they rejected the deliverance that was offered to them by their persecutors. Once again, it seems that the writer might have been thinking about the Jewish martyrs at the time of Antiochus. It was out of that time, by the way, when the Maccabees rose up, that they came about and and eventually developed the festival of Hanukkah that the Jews still celebrate today, the cleansing of the temple. But prior to that cleansing was a great, great time of persecution for the Jews. We're told in history that there was a mother who had seven sons. The king tried to get all of them to eat the swine meat. They all refused. One by one, they were tormented and killed in the presence of their mother. Each remained faithful to their God unto death. The second son to die is recorded as saying to the king, Thou, like a fury, takest us out of this present life, but the king of the world shall raise us up who have died for his laws unto everlasting life. Those words were written before Jesus was on earth. They believed in the resurrection. The writer of Hebrews tells us that. That's the better resurrection, folks. To wait for the resurrection that God will raise us up at the end unto everlasting life. You see, the, the son of the widow at Zarephath or the Shunammite woman, they were raised to life, to this life, and had to die again. But the resurrection, the better resurrection, is to be raised unto that, that new life, the glorified body recorded that one martyr said to his executioner, you take a life I cannot keep and bestow a life I cannot lose which is as if you rob me of counters and furnish me with gold. If you have the gold who cares about the counters and the tables that it's sitting on, right? Everlasting life is the gold, folks this life is just like the table that you'd set the gold on. But that's faith. To hold out, to die if necessary for the Lord Jesus. It goes on to say, and they had trial, others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Mockings is derision, heaped upon someone like uh, sarcastically uh, imitating them or something like that. The scourgings has to do with being beaten like with a whip. So here you have two types of abuse. The one is verbal and the other is physical. The one is meant to wear you down emotionally and the other is meant to wear you down physically. But they're both hard. He says, moreover, bonds of imprisonment. Uh, the list is nearly endless of those who suffered imprisonment because of their faith. Joseph was imprisoned by his Egyptian master on a false charge. Micaiah was locked up for speaking the truth to Ahab, king of Israel. Asa imprisoned the prophet who rebuked him for his lack of faith in God. Jeremiah, we are told, was put in stocks in Jerusalem. The apostles were imprisoned. Many other Christians in the first century were imprisoned. Queen Mary locked up the Protestants in the tower before executing them in the 1500s. The Russian communists imprisoned many Christians and sent others to Siberia. The Chinese have imprisoned many believers even today. It goes on. Bonds and imprisonment. In verse 37, he says, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword so in this verse now, we get to just the barrage of, of a list of trials and persecutions. Stoned. Uh, they might have been thinking of Jeremiah. Tradition says he was stoned to death after the Jews had dragged him to Egypt against his will. and Preaching the truth to them, they stoned him. sawn asunder. Tradition says Isaiah was cut in two with a wooden saw in the days of Manasseh, who was one of the cruelest kings in Judah. Tempted. Interesting. In the midst of this list of martyrdoms is this reminder that during these ordeals, many of them were tempted, that is, urged to renounce their faith, you know, persecution may be done at the hand of man, but the ultimate source of it is the devil, whose plan is to get a man to be unfaithful to God. But these men and these women, we are told they, they had faith to die at the stoning or the, the saws or the swords, even though they were tempted. He goes on to say they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. Well, we're told Elijah dressed like that. I talked about that last week. John the Baptist was clothed in a camel's hair and a leathern girdle. But I think the primary emphasis on those descriptions is to emphasize their poverty. Look at what it says next. Being destitute. That is that, that they're suffering want. They're in poverty. Because of the cause of Christ, they lack the basic necessities of life. How many of God's servants have given up wealth and fame or even just the basic comforts in order to serve the Lord, especially in a foreign land? I think sometimes we're tempted to think that it's easy for missionaries to live without the basic necessities. We see and read about our missionaries, for example, in Papua New Guinea. Wow, they... They must just have that rugged spirit about them, we think, you know. Well, maybe they do have more of that spirit than you or, or me, but, but you know, their bodies enjoy the comforts that we enjoy. They're human just like we are. But you see, it's their faith. It's their faith that compels them to give up the money, to give up the comfort, and to take the gospel to a people who have never heard, even though that means they're going to be destitute. One of the favorite missionary stories of my wife and me is of Arthur and Wilder Matthews. They were the last China Inland Missions missionaries to leave China after the communists took over in the the 50s. Their hardships are recounted in the book Greenleaf in Drought. The communists tried to do everything they could to break their faith before they would let them leave the country. They even uh, froze their funds, trying to starve them out. At one point, they were so destitute that they had no money, not even to buy coal to put in their stove, including their cook stove. So, Arthur was forced to make coal balls. The Chinese, the very poor Chinese, made coal balls using sheep manure and water and coal dust. And that's what he had to do. Not only was it a degrading act, it chapped his hands terribly, left them extremely painful destitute he says afflicted the word means troubled literally it means to press like the pressing of grapes to make juice some are afflicted by enemies some are afflicted by poverty some are afflicted by disease and poor health the type of affliction is not specified but no matter what your affliction folks you're called to endure to suffer patiently, to suffer joyfully, to suffer with a faith that will not move. James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 say, "'Take, my brethren, the prophets, "'who have spoken in the name of the Lord "'for an example of suffering, affliction, "'and of patience. "'Behold, we count them happy which endure. "'Ye have seen, you have heard of the patience of Job, "'and have seen the end of the Lord, "'that the Lord is very pitiful.'" and of tender mercy. He says they were tormented. The word means to be mistreated or mishandled. It's the same word that appears in Hebrews 13, verse 3. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, there's the word, mistreated, as being yourselves also in the body. You know, folks, if you've tried to live an honest Christian life, you have no doubt been mistreated by others. The godly man or woman is hated by the world because he represents everything that they are opposed to. Jesus Christ was mistreated. The early Christians were mistreated. So should we really expect anything less? Especially in a day like ours. 1 Peter 2, verse 20 says, For what glory is it when ye be buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently? You know, if you suffer because you did wrong, well, you ought to take it patiently. But if when ye do well ye suffer for it, ye shall take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Our Canadian brethren have been a good example of that to us in this last year. It goes on in verse 38. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That, that word wandered there is the same word that Jesus used when he talked about the one sheep that wandered away from the 100. And the idea is that, that they wandered aimlessly or they, they wandered where there was great dangers. It could emphasize, folks, that they had no home of their own. And look at where they're living, you know, deserts, mountains, dens, caves. Those are remote places. Wandering was was not one from wasn't from one civilized city to another civilized city. It was from of a the removed from civilization. They're in the uncomfortable places. They're the outcasts of society. The second half of the author's list isn't so impressive, is it? i oh, we get excited with all the miracles in the first half of the list. I think we would have preferred if we were writing this. We would have preferred if we would have just ended there right after the first statement there in verse 35, right? Right after all the miracles. We want to see deliverances. We want to see victories. We want to see amazing acts of God. And that takes faith, amazing faith. But it takes just as much faith to endure the trials, to refuse the deliverance because it would be a compromise, to experience poverty in order to serve God, to suffer defeat and even death for God's glory. As I said, you and I don't get to choose which category we fall into we only get to choose whether we will have faith or not but i want you to go back to verse 38 and look at god's commendation the king james puts it in parentheses for us and this is especially of those who suffered he says of whom the world was not worthy i love that statement in its irony Because you see, the world thought that these men were not worthy to live among them, so they put them to death. But God says the real evaluation of the matter is that the world was not worthy to have these men living among them. Do you realize that heaven will be full of such worthy saints? And we shall be named among them. Will your life receive the same commendation from the Savior? The moment you pass into glory, will the Lord say to you, welcome home. This is where you belong. The world did not deserve you. You know, I think that if my Savior speaks those words to me, all the pain and suffering that I've had to experience in this life, will vanish in an instant. Paul says in Romans eight eighteen, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Ah, my friends, whether we see miracles or non-miracles, faith is the key. We're called to live by faith. Whether we're escaping the edge of the sword or whether we're being slain by it, we must live by faith whether we experience a great deliverance or a great oppression. It's not the circumstances that make your life great, not according to God. It's your faith that he's looking at. And in God's books, the heroes are not only the ones who saw great things happen and did great things for God. God also sees the men and women who have suffered with faith, and he counts them worthy of honor also. So I say, don't give up. Your faith needs to hold on. As we uh, close out this series, I'm going to share with you uh, a song that my wife wrote last year in the midst of her suffering and her sickness. The Lord had given her a number of songs. Now, I'm going to sing it for you, but I'm going to just tell you I am really not a soloist, okay? I'm going to sing in faith that you're not all going to abandon this auditorium before I'm done. <laughs> but what I'd like you to do is to learn the chorus, uh, and then if you, uh, can get a, if you can get the hang of it, sing along with me on the chorus, and we'll sing it together. Rome is going to graciously play for me. Too. Sure. No light in sorrows deep, our souls cry out, O Lord, how long? Then you send grace, and in the night you give a song together. Let come what may, God's promises are sure. again pray. Gracious God, we thank you that our faith can hold on because it's in you and you are a rock. So I pray Lord that whatever it is that we must face this week next week this next month or next year, we would have faith in you. Miracles or no miracles. And I know Lord there are some in this room that are facing some very hard trials and others who are watching online and they're watching online because of their health trials Lord whether you give healing or not I pray that the faith of these individuals would continue to hold on to God knowing that someday you will commend them for their faith And I pray, Lord, that we would all live in such a way that we would be found worthy in your sight on that great day. We ask it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.